0: Beyond Queer Stories, the podcast that gives voice to the queer community through the art of storytelling. Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. I'm Dawn.
1: And I'm John Dylan. Yes, Devin West is our guest on today's episode of Beyond Queer Stories. Devin West is a gender fluid queer settler artist scholar from North Central Canada. Devin's art practice is deeply informed by cultural and social identity politics and actively works with structural themes of tension, suspension, and disruption to advance conversations of gender fluidity. Devin's conceptual uh, installation art pieces actively challenge and destabilize notions of femininity and masculinity as stable signals of binary bodies. Devin's research, creation, process, and practice resides in gender fluid resilience, cohabitating intention, suspension, and disruption with the structures of heteronormality. Devin is a clinical social worker from another life, a master carpenter for a more recent life. Devin has a master of arts degree in gender studies from this current life and is also currently a a cultural studies doctoral student at Queens University. So impressive. Most recent exhibits include gender fluid ge- geography, unmapping masculinity, bleed for the binary and distillation of resilience, feminine masculinity in form, and gender reveal party. You should follow Devin at DevinWest.com to see all of this greatness and amazing education that you deserve to know and grow from. Devin, thank you for joining us this morning. How are you?
2: Well, you make me sound so impressive. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Because you are. Yes, I'm so excited to get into all this and get to know you. And we always start off with this question. So we'll see where this leads us. So what identities do you feel most influence your experiences?
2: Right now, the, the identity that feels the most tangible to influencing my experience is my rural identity, um, having grown up in northern Saskatchewan, which is in kind of this, well, above North Dakota, um, for the American listeners, to give you a, a, a geography. Uh, so very rural, very uh, Midwestern, and just having recently moved to Kingston, Ontario for my PhD program and moving to the East. And it's made me think a lot about uh, how that rural identity gets transferred into other environments that are subtly or not so subtly quite a bit different.
0: Thank you for sharing that. So I love how you kind of map out your experiences in these like different lives. And I feel like I've been thinking a lot about that with myself too or I think back on something things I'm like that's a whole other life that I had that feels like it was a lifetime ago and that experience and even that person who I was so I'd love to hear a little bit about where how your art is kind of developed it sounds like it's been a big part of de- your development over time and grew into this passion and you pursuing this as a higher level degree as well can you tell us a little bit about that
2: Sure. I started out doing stained glass as a kid. It was just offered to me as an art option in school. And, um, uh, that got me going, but I never really took being an artist seriously. That's always a question artists have is when, when do you, when do you identify as an artist? Um, and for me, that was more recently. I had a 10 year social work career. Uh, in clinical social work and one of the reasons I left it was because I felt like social work left no room for creativity and it wasn't so much that I considered myself an artist but I knew that I would I I felt like I was dying without any kind of creative outlet just to express myself and in some way that social work wasn't allowing room for Um, and that's when I started my carpentry career and carpentry was a a great outlet for expressing myself creatively in a really practical, tangible, functional way. And I still love carpentry for that reason. But, um, I, again, it had its limitations in, in being able to, um, express myself more formally or begin to think about reaching audiences artistically to make statements Um, was uh, something that really drove me to starting grad school and leaving carpentry um, three years ago. So I guess I've just started identifying as an artist when I started grad school. I guess it was four years ago now. Um, And then uh, seeing where art needs to be injected into academia is really what's been motivating me to um, pursue more artistic Means of uh, talking about things academically.
1: Now, one of the things that I, I I'm listening to Devin um, as you speak, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of my path. You know, I for me, grad school was so momentous, and I remember my first day of school, and I remember what I felt like the morning of graduation, and I literally realized I am not the same person. How was that that process? with grad school and you, your evolution process. And um, would you attribute that to your own personal revolution? I mean, evolution, or was it connected to the studies that were now changing your life? Or was this just probably, do you feel like it was just the universe changing you at such a time?
2: Hmm. That's a good question. I, I feel like Grad school was a doorway to exploring my own fluidity in the greater fluidity of, of the world, or, or you know, the, the world that I'm living in or, or, um, navigating. And so, I think for me, I feel like it. I I can relate to what you're saying about feeling like a different person. Um, I feel like grad school has accelerated that possibility for fluidity to exist and, and be in flow. I feel like very much grad school has been about being in flow for me. Um, I- some of my classmates who are uh, talking about their experience of grad school right now, it, it seems like it's um, built in with lots of challenges and obstacles. And and although I, I have experienced challenges and obstacles, I feel like the, the much bigger piece for me is that being in flow and, and not resisting where where that takes me.
0: That's beautiful. And you From the titles of your art pieces that were mentioned in your bio too, it sounds like your gender journey has been a big part of that. And what has that looked like for you? How has that evolved over time for you? I would
2: say it's evolved greatly through the process of grad school in terms of being able to find the language or create the language to articulate what that gender journey has been like or what it looks like um, as, as we're evolving culturally around gender identity as well. What it looks like for me is a way to, art as a as a means of uh, documenting that process. I feel like my art is very much an, an archive of artifacts of a gender process and, and a way to have uh, conversations with m- many different uh, audiences. And I don't like calling people who look at art an audience, but I haven't found a better word yet. So if you think of one, let me know. I feel like audience implies a lack of participation, and I think installation art in specific uh, demands participation or allows for participation, so audience doesn't seem right to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, I know there's there's another word that would probably fit better, but it's not coming to me yet. I feel like it's going to, though. Yeah, participant
2: seems kind of clinical.
0: Right, yeah, researchy and clinical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like you said, it, art has that power too to connect people and for people to be in space where they feel heard and seen. So I'm wondering, has there have there been moments where that really came forward for you, either you notice someone else connecting with a piece and feeling seen maybe when they haven't before or even you being seen in being a part of this and putting this out there for others to take in?
2: Um, I think the the biggest gift that I received in grad school was the affirmation from my research participants in my master's process. I had uh, four gender fluid research participants talk about their experiences of gender fluidity and resilience, and I, my research was based on uh, – trying to find any common threads of resilience for those research participants to define gender fluidity as a, um, w- what resilience might look like within gender fluidity and uh, so the biggest gift that they that I feel like I received in grad school was uh, them reading my thesis and going my my master's work was part thesis written thesis and part uh, art, Exhibition. Uh, so I had an installation exhibition based on their stories, their the research findings that came from their their interviews and their stories. Uh, so for them, it was thanking me for creating a space to define themselves in a way that they hadn't had a platform to define themselves. So that for me was a big aha to think about art as holding space for other people to um, define to, to define themselves however they want and be able to relate to a piece of art in such a way.
1: I feel as if your art, have you ever considered taking it on tour?
2: Well, yes, but you know, the life of a starving artist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and a grad student, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. You need a tour manager.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, too, yeah. Dang it. Too bad that one. I don't know how to do that one. And the reason why I'm, at, I'm saying that is because I'm thinking about people who I went to grad school with and I'm thinking about just the climate of things that we're on where people are becoming more self-aware and how your work is very anchored in life-saving techniques, if you will. And I see it from that perspective. Because giving someone the opportunity to anchor their identity in something they've been trying to figure out for so long can save a life. Mm -hmm, Very much so. Saves a life from frustration. And then also, like I don't know, I'm just going to speak freely about how I see this. Literally, someone seeing your work, seeing an advertisement for it, deciding to go and bringing a parent. And having the opportunity to have that parent understand their child better at that moment with your work. So that's why I'm like, I'm thinking like, how can I get you to Oakland? What can I do?
2: (laughs) You'll have to um, sweet talk a curator somewhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I'm putting it out there into the universe, literally. And throwing it out there as an intention that needs to, 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 to manifest in 2020 because... it it needs to happen. It's almost like Big Pharma has this one particular drug that they want to give away for free. It's like here, all the diabetics, here's your insulin for free, you know? And so, oh my goodness, I would just, I would just love to see your work just surpass all those, those, those boundaries, because there are people who need this in order to help them understand who they are. And I'm really grateful for what, Well, thanks. That's
2: uh, very motivating.
0: And that makes me wonder, um, who have been your inspirations in doing your art? You know, like like John doesn't say, like so many people need that and need to be able to see that and connect with that type of art. And I'm sure there are people who, you know, as you've gone through your process, who has really inspired and motivated you.
2: Uh, you know sometimes artists get that asked that question and i feel like the answer is supposed to be some more famous artist or or some you know there's some sort of expected answer and i feel like the the that the core of my art practice is really rooted in being supported by my community my friends and my family and my community and just recognizing the idea of um being in relationship and how we are in relationship whether we think about it as being in relationship or not and so so who inspires me are the the people who are out there doing their own thing whether that's art or um, you know, just activism is another one that's, like, really hard to... It's a bit of a moving target, like, who decides if who's an activist and and how does that look? And so, you know, I, what it inspires me is when something invisible becomes visible in any sort of way, because I think with both art and activism, the invisible has to, to somehow become visible.
0: I love that. That's so true. A lot of times it's about like kind of like i was saying like being seen right like allowing that space for mm-hmm. people and ideas and identities to just be seen
2: mhm and so it's really you know we have to hold space for each other
0: mhm absolutely well on that note i'd like to hold some space here for you to tell us your story today bye,
2: bye, 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 bye. Okay, well, that's great. So the story I chose, um, was a piece that I wrote for a cultural studies theory class last year that I took. And I wrote it for two reasons. One, the class was quite dry and had no artistic components to it. So I had to teach, uh, I had 10 minutes to talk about Audre Lorde. And I thought, who can talk about Audre Lorde in 10 minutes? She needs more than 10 minutes, you know. So I thought this was a good way to inject a little piece of creativity into my class while talking about Audre Lorde. And my PhD research is loosely on queer kinship, ways of of establishing and defining queer kinship um, and being in relationship in terms of queer kinship. So this is a letter that I wrote to Audre Lorde as my queer ancestor. March 13, 2019. Dear Audrey, at one time I would have written a letter to you as my queer elder. Now I am writing to you as my queer ancestor. Initially, I found myself thinking I wanted to write this letter to pay my respect. However, I find the word respect, one overused by fundamentalist white folks who believe respect is something inherent to their position in life, while the rest of us scramble for scraps. I decenter fundamentalism as a matter of my own survival at times. You might say I do it for those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, I am writing this letter to acknowledge and make visible our queer kinship through the many times your activism, your poetry have deeply influenced my own queer and poor identities of another generation. Let me tell you about the first time we met. The year you died of breast cancer, I was 17. I had just moved from my Saskatchewan farm to a city in North Dakota. I started university and played competitive hockey. I had always played hockey on a men's team, but in university I played on a women's team. To pay for school, I began to identify as a woman in order to play hockey. It was my first experience of the commodification of my female body, but I didn't know yet what the exchange would cost me. Your collection of essays called Sister Outsider had been published only a few years before, but it took many years more for me to discover your words. North Dakota boasted an Air Force base with the largest cache of nuclear weapons, and the Gulf War had just ended. Air raid sirens perched on power poles and air raid drills were practiced in the many churches surrounding campus. The air felt taut with unerupted violence, the skin of a drum stretched too tightly over a frame. The university was situated just south of the Air Force Base, nestled in badlands riddled with military men and hostile ranchers. One of those ranchers stalked me for a year. Notes were left on my car windshield, so I knew he knew where I lived. Eventually, he broke into my car and stole random things the volume control on my car stereo, my student gym pass. Eventually, dead birds were strung by their feet, dangling from my rearview mirror, mocking life. The police said there was nothing to be done, and nothing was done, until the night he broke it into my house. I took the stand and paid with my university seat. I did not understand yet that the game was fixed. Reading Sister Outsider might have revealed these rules, the rules of a body lost, a body stolen. Over the years, I have heard many people abbreviate your most famous quote to a simplified, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. However, I think about the full quote often, the one where you say, Those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable woman, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. If I had read your words in North Dakota, I might have recognized the stalker as the master's tool and the law as the master's house. But I didn't meet you until 1996. I returned to university, this time in the Faculty of Social Work in Regina. I had a fledgling queer community and a fledgling understanding of how crucial my queer community is. It was the first time I belonged anywhere. In my community, there was an English professor, Jan, Attempted to teach your self described biomythography called ZAMI, a new spelling of my name, to a first year English class. Many of the students openly complained about the queer content of ZAMI and some filed a formal complaint calling Jan's teaching into question. In queer solidarity, I inserted myself into the back of Jan's lecture theater and asked questions about ZAMI. I wanted to keep your voice alive throughout the semester. This is how you and I met. Your words were disruptive, devastatingly visual, and enticing. Zami was the first time my mind's eye had been exposed to the details of your experience of being black and your experience of being lesbian. I listened as deeply as a 21-year-old farm kid knew how to As I supported Jan in her struggle to teach Zami, Jan supported me in my struggle with social work. I had the required class for social work communication. Midterm, the instructor chastised me in front of the whole class. She felt that my communication style was too masculine. I needed to practice a more feminine communication style if I planned on being a successful social worker, which she clearly indicated I was not. I recognized the hostility aimed at my masculinity for the first time. For more than 20 years, I accepted this behavior as homophobic. I thought queerness was my offense. As it turned out, heteronormativity is the fabric binding the bone shards of patriarchy together. My professor's behavior was a response to the disruption of my masculinity. This hyperfeminine, hyperheterosexual professor in a position of authority hated me for no reason other than her inability to read me. When my gender is assumed to be concealed, a distinct confusion flutters to perch on a more pronounced anger in the accuser, as though I have intentionally set a trap for them. I no longer call this homophobia, but rather genderphobia. Without words to articulate what was happening to me, I defiantly wrote the final paper on communication and queer culture, specifically the use of body signaling in the 1990s to build public safety for queers, while being careful not to publicly out them. This paper was the first place I quoted you academically. I referred to a passage in Zami where you eloquently describe a childhood memory of your mom doing her best to protect you from the everyday racism you experienced. You spoke of times when white people spit at you and your mom and how your mom would disparage them as low-class people for spitting into the wind. I thought this was a stirring and brilliant example of how cultural communication is used to hold space for a reality and an identity under constant scrutiny. Again, the professor took an opportunity to publicly shame me in class. She made a point of giving me an F because queer communication simply does not exist. I do not exist. I had to take the class again with yet another straight cisgendered white woman, one possibly more friendly than the last. You tried to warn me of women like this when you said, this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house, as their only source of support. It was just the first of many classes I failed to finish my degree, stitching the tears in that fabric to soldier on. You seem to be more noted for being a civil rights activist and a feminist activist than a queer activist. As my queer ancestor, I can see the ways in which your queer activism and queer identity are erased. As though you can be black, and I can be queer, but you cannot be black and queer. Wikipedia does a fine job of erasing your queerness. Not mentioned at all is your queer activism. What is mentioned is the name of the man you were married to for four years in the 1960s. Not mentioned are the women who loved you and cared for you throughout the end of your cancer years. They are not even a footnote but the man you married gets to ride through immortality on the coattails of your name. The paradoxical title of Sister Outsider expresses your commitment to your identity, multiplicities being in relationship to assemble such a unique identity. These multiplicities often placed you in a space that refused the safety of an inside parameter, demonstrating your ability to embrace difficulty, on the path to creating change. You continuously inform us that the histories of westernized culture have conditioned us to view human differences in simplistic opposition to each other, creating a binary, good, bad, superior, inferior, and to always be suspicious of the latter, instead of, as you suggest, using differences as a catalyst for change. Throughout your essays, you emphasize the use of poetry as a profound form of knowledge, a powerful tool for naming and challenging power relations within a racist, patriarchal society. Your thoughts guide my own fluidity as I learn to reject the strict borders of identity you refused long before. I read some of your essays over time but I hadn't taken the time to read Sister Outsider from front to back. In 2008, my partner Finn was diagnosed with an aggressive and advanced late-stage lymphoma, a cancer of the lymphatic system. With a prognosis of six weeks to live untreated by the most aggressive of chemotherapies, opposed to the poisonous effects of chemotherapy, Finn only had a couple of hours to decide her future, I spent three days curled next to her at the Saskatoon Cancer Center as we waited for the poison to work its ironic magic. For comfort, I had Sister Outsider packed next to the water and snacks I no longer cared for. My first experience of homophobia, or perhaps I mean gender phobia, in the cancer system came from nurses. As the patient, Finn's queer identity was invisible, particularly because she passes for straight and cisgendered. Me, I am much more visibly invisible. On the first day, the nurse in charge of Finn's care constantly insisted I would be much more comfortable waiting for Finn at home. When she insisted for the sixth or seventh time, I drummed up the deepest of energy reserves to ask her just one thing— I wanted to know if she was the one who was uncomfortable, and perhaps she would be more comfortable caring for a different patient. The politics of care and safety thinly veil the Christian undercurrent of control and sabotage. It can be exhausting in the strongest of times, but in the cancer center I had scarcely the steam to speak civilly through a simmering age-old rage. Fists full of violence clenched around my copy of Sister Outsider. In an act of resistance and survival, I threw Sister Outsider at the nurse's head as she fled. Sadly, your words swiftly bounced off the door, creaking closed. Only then could I see your words as a shield rather than a weapon. Your shield held space for me to offer Finn shelter from some of the hate. Was your poetry your shield? your shelter. Yesterday, I asked a younger PhD classmate if he had read any of your work. He said he hadn't read your work directly, but rather he read the next generation of scholars who refer to your work. I'm sorry, this letter is just a footnote on the liminal magical places sister outsiders like you dwell, a footnote on the intellectual influence of your thoughts on mine. I do hope this letter inspires others to read your words directly, carefully, to take your words in and build their own shield, their own shelter in queer kinship, Devin West.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. That, that covered so many parts of your journey too, which I really appreciate. And I'm sitting with, Deciding which piece to start with because there's so many powerful parts to it. And also processing through, like, my connection to, you know, reading Audre Lorde and how that's impacted me as well. So let's go to the beginning. So in the beginning, you talked about before you came across Audre's work, you were experiencing this um, pretty overt, discrimination in school and um, not being seen or trying to be made to be invisible by other professors and then also not being supported in this stalker incident that sounds terrifying. Um, And as the U.S. does, they don't really protect people unless they've already been hurt, (laughs) and even then, sometimes not. So I what was... Going through all of that at once, like for you, what, where did you find support or comfort during that time? That sounds really scary and isolating.
2: Well, that was in the early nineties, so there was really no nothing for formal support. Everything was very underground, like. I would say the queer community was probably pretty underground at that time. I didn't have any queer community in North Dakota for sure. My first experience was living in Regina, well, I ended up just leaving. Like I don't know that I ever got any formal support in during that time. Yeah, and that was the beginning of finding a queer community. Was at, was leaving North Dakota and recognizing that I needed support.
0: So where did you first connect with community? You said in Regina, and how did you discover that community and, and find a place to feel safe and connected? Um, that
2: was yeah, moving to Regina and starting school again and then and, and starting to understand that a, it was a big enough city that I could figure out that a queer community actually existed and, and that It seems like we all go through a process. Uh, unless we have the benefit of coming from a family where um, a, a queer community is already embedded, it seems like most of us go through a process of having to discover finding a queer community or having to discover that one actually exists. In the 90s, it would have just been person by person, and then just the, the individual relationships that form a web. Finding a queer community in the early 90s, I can remember um, one of the primary ways I found queer community in Regina was there were two queer women who had started, uh, um, it, it would have been like a... It was like a, a a lesbian newsletter that they put out every two or three months, I think, and literally hand delivered to people's mailboxes. And it was kind of like this underground thing, and there you could get a copy at the alternative bookstore once in a while. And that's how I found my first uh, queer events or f- uh, my first way of connecting with uh, uh, other queer people was through this little this little handmade newsletter. Yeah. So the newsletter was called Sensible Shoes
0: News. (laughs) Cute.
2: um, I wish I had some copies of it because I didn't understand how important archiving was back then, you know, in your your 20s. But the first event that I would have gone to, I don't know if it was exactly the first one, but the first one I remember is going to a, a women's potluck. And that was my first real sense of there being actually a very established community, not just a series of. collective individuals but but you know a solid community Um, and that was also very underground that just went from one woman's house to the next woman's house um, on a monthly basis and it was yeah basically kind of they screened you because they were so concerned about violence at that point in time or or being outed um, because it was in people's houses, so uh, you had to phone a you had to phone a, a phone number on in the newsletter and answer kind of some screening questions, and then they would give you the address of the next next potluck.
0: Wow, yeah, that that does sound like an important archive to have, and mm-hmm. even documentation of photos from those, and just part of that queer history that you were really a part of.
2: mm Hmm. Yeah, prior to a, the common use of the Internet.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and that's a, a big thing too, right, is now kids growing up have so much access through the Internet to all kinds of connections within their identities and finding a place where they, they feel represented and feel a sense of home. If you know, Especially, like you said, you're from a more rural community, and kids who are in rural communities and hold identities where they don't see themselves represented around them, go through a lot of isolation. And the internet gives us this way to have people reach out and try and make those connections, even though it might not be in person, um, to be able to find somebody who they feel understands maybe where they're at and what they're going through.
2: Mm -hmm. I was the artist in residence for a queer youth camp this summer, and their mandate was um, indigenous queer youth and rural queer youth. And it was, they had 40 youth in the camp and it was really yeah. astonishing how many of them had no access to a queer community outside of the camp and how uh, life-saving that was for them to develop a, a social community or um, a, an online community that they could keep in touch with the rest of the year.
1: So Devin, do you think that you know as you're speaking about the, the youth um and I what I I think of too is that I, I spoke about this for the another in another session about how you know I'm so grateful that this new generation has what they have as far as the ability to create and engage in communities especially in non-traditional ways but I was also thinking about um how you you would feel about you know if people were to create community centered with your art being the center, but yet still it's a queer, almost a creation of a queer family around it. Um, Especially for those who are, you know, a little bit on the season side, like the 30 and 40 plus club. What are your thoughts about that?
2: Developing a community?
1: Yes, literally with your your work being at the center of it, um, especially as you get that exposure. But, you know, how would you feel that were created?
2: Well, I haven't thought about my work being the center of it, but I do often as a, a carpenter think about how much we need uh, some community housing for queer seniors because it seems like seniors have a way of having to go back into the closet in in major ways because of the lack of possibilities for us to age in community in our own community mm. so I've, I've thought about that quite a lot um, my partner is also a carpenter and so we talk about you know how how can we like tangibly build seniors housing for queer seniors but really it would be really amazing you know in my my utopian world it would be that kind of housing but multi-generational or intergenerational mm. That
1: sounds amazing.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting to think of an intergenerational. I've definitely had those conversations with friends about, you know, those compounds and community living and all of that and um thinking of this intergenerational structure where we could set up space for mentorship and set up space for pulling each other up, right? Cuz those phases are so different, and we have been having conversation lately about what do we do with our spaces as we age. Because that's something. Even being in Chicago, we're in a huge city, and like John Dolan said, we talked about this a little bit on a recording yesterday, where once you get to like, it depends on people's phase of life and when they phase out of wanting to like be in the bar scenes, but mid-30s, 40s, 50s, where are those spaces for those queer communities, and where do we find connection, and where where do we go? Because they don't exist as a permanent structure. There's not a place that we can go to. We really have to put in a lot of work to cultivate it and create it, and me just reflecting on here in Chicago, if we didn't have organizers who curate those spaces, there would be nothing. Um, in terms of like outside of just a media friend group, there would be absolutely nothing for us as, as an event or as a space where we can go and just meet one another. It really takes people to put in that work that often is not, you know, there's a lot of reward in that work, but I feel like people are underappreciated when they do that work. Um, they're not always acknowledged for how much work they put into it and how much of their lives they're dedicating to creating that space for us. And I I feel like there's been a lot more conversation around that lately that I've been hearing. I'm curious, because you're in Canada, so are there similar conversations there? Are there similar barriers and challenges to finding and cultivating those spaces?
2: Yeah, I think there are similar challenges for sure, if not maybe more amplified because even – like just comparing populations between the U S and Canada. Like we just don't have the same population. So even in our more urban centers, like I know there's lots of conversations around the lesbian bar, for example, or, or places for women specifically to meet. And then how do you meet the community needs of, of all the groups of such a diverse eclectic community and that makes me think in the more broader context of my own research, in terms of, um, I, I've been thinking a lot of like, how do we identify ourselves, such a complex, m- multiplicitous community? How do we identify culturally? Like, how, you know, how how can we have some sort of cultural cohesion to bring us together? I don't have an answer to that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe by the time I finish school, but, you know, that's. Um, a ways away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's no easy answer to that, right? Like that's, that's a challenge and that that's likely going to continue to be a challenge because we have to create those spaces and, and make them happen and make sure that people feel seen that, you know, like you've been saying, like make the invisible visible. How does that play into your work? What what do you think about as you're creating your pieces in terms of establishing visibility?
2: When I'm creating a piece, it's a kind of an inspired process. So sometimes I will um, put the piece together and then spend a lot of time figuring out what I'm trying to say through the piece or what the meaning and the context of the piece is. And that's the process part. So I think because of that process, it's always a process of going from invisible to visible and then figuring out what is the visible element of it.
0: I'm also noticing we're almost at time. Jondalyn, do you have any other thoughts you want to make sure we ask about before we get to wrap time?
1: I'm just very grateful for Devin's presence, especially within the community, even though Devin is hailing from a different part of North America. grateful for your work um, and how it's going to make a difference. I'm grateful for your relationship with with Audrey Lloyd that I am. And so I'm looking forward to seeing your work around here. I really am.
0: Well, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Keep creating, keep sharing, because that's so important to help all of us be seen. And appreciate it. And if you have any images of your work you want us to put out there when we put up the episode, feel free to send us anything you'd like us to show the audience as well.
2: Okay, great. Thank you. The um, I've been using the Audrey Lord letter as a as a teaching tool. So I actually it's part of a perform an academic performance that I do at conferences, and another part of it is uh, a slideshow of my work, and I. I read from the back of the room and so part of the performance is taking my body out of removing my body from the line of sight because it's not the object yeah Audrey's voice is the object so
0: very cool very cool so if people want to learn more about your work I know you gave us your website is there anywhere else you'd like them to connect with you or anything upcoming that you want people to know about?
2: I just have my website for now, so that's just devinwest.com, and I think that's where I'll put as much as I can to keep it in a central location.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's great to have you.
2: Well, thanks to you both. I mean, you t- you talked about me being an artist, but really um, blog uh, blogging is, is a really fantastic artistic form to create community as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.
2: Well, thanks for the opportunity. That's wonderful.
0: Absolutely. Enjoy your day. You too. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. Connect with Beyond Queer Stories on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories and on Twitter at Beyond Queer Pod. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, click the link on our Facebook or Instagram page or email us at beyondqueerstories at gmail.com. If you listen on Apple Podcast or iTunes, please rate us and subscribe to help boost the podcast. Our podcast music is created by B. Steadwell. Check out her music, tour dates, and other queer art at bsteadwell.com. That's B-E-S-T-E-A-D-W-E-L-L dot Beyond Queer Stories is produced and edited by Dawn Brown and recorded in the Cards Against Humanity podcast studio in Chicago, Illinois. Check out their products at cardsagainsthumanity.com. Talk to y'all next week. Next time on Beyond Queer Stories. And after our conversation, I came to realize that what I needed to do was, tr- was to transition. So with four years and 11 months of sobriety, I figured out who I was and and honestly had forgotten my promise to kill myself in April of 99.